Reverend. You can have any truth you want. Walk, talk, address a duke, a lord, a bishop, an ambassador. It's absolutely impossible. of the Projections Podcast. We are Sarah, Catherine Cleaver and Mary Wilde and we like to use psychoanalysis to talk about film and film to talk about life. We're back with a series of episodes exploring fashion films. We'll be running through themes including controlling creation, desiring desire, violence and bodies, consuming and corruption, fetish, reading clothes and disguise and secrets as well as anything else that happens to come up during our sessions. We're especially fascinated by the relationship between fashion and death, and we've chosen films that represent this intriguing dynamic. Join us for an in-depth investigation of fashion films. Bye! Hi, Larry. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We've already been sitting here talking for an hour. Yeah. So we're really <laughs> good warm-up, good yeah. warm-up. <laughs> My voice is a little bit tired, actually. <laughs> Um, so today we're continuing our fashion films series with two films quite actually we just realized quite near each other in terms of date yeah um, and lots and thematically as well uh, two erotic I'm gonna say two erotic thrillers yeah yeah absolutely uh, Crimes of Fashion 1984 and Blue Velvet 1986 yeah and we're gonna be discussing them in terms of uh, themes that we've loosely categorized as fashion and fetish exactly exactly mm. And it's interesting. It's it's it seems like such serendipity that we've ended up on these two titles. I feel like they're actually really good. They're really good together. Together, right? It's a good uh, combination. It's really good. I'm much more. And considering that we've both seen Blue Velvet, but I really, I came across Crimes of Passion. I'm not quite sure how, mm. but I just as soon as I found out that one of the characters was a fashion designer, I was just oh, like, yeah. oh, we'll just we'll just do this one. And but neither of us actually watched it until quite recently. Yeah. Um, and luckily it, it was perfect. It was but perfect. It could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, I loved it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I know. Your, your face is just like yeah. lighting up. I haven't, I haven't seen you like a film like this for a while. I mean, no, that's not true. You like films like this all the time. But this is a new one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's really made me want to discover more by Ken Russell, of course, the director. Um, and Crimes of Passion, it's worth mentioning. Uh, starring Kathleen Turner. Mm-hmm. Uh, she of the wonderful voice. Oh my god, such a goddess in this film. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love her. And s- so well cast in this film, Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Um and the, yeah, it's I, I it was very it was very Hitchcockian in, mm-hmm. in, in, in parts. But um I just love so many aspects about it. So maybe we should we can start with this we one, start yeah. With that. Do you want to beforehand though mm. start? Do you have? I mean, I know that Freud wrote an essay uh, yeah. about fetish, about yeah. fetishism. Yeah. Um, which, from what I can gather, is mainly about penises and uh, and having them and not having them. Yeah. Um, but is there a, a is there sort of an updated definition of that? Well, the way that I come to terms with 
my understanding of the fetish in psychoanalysis because it is something that is um, certainly thought about and debated still mm -hmm. in modern times in within psychoanalytic circles is that ultimately um, in childhood development if there is um, a perceived kind of center of power that uh, withholds um, you know, pleasure or uh, some 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 form of desire from the child, or restricts the child in certain ways, or maybe even over you know over um, indulges. Mm -hmm. It can be e you know either extremes. That there's the possibility of within kind of the ordinary stages of psychosexual development, for something to remain uh, almost like crystallized. Uh, in an sort of unconsciously in an eroticized way, and then some object will stand in that thing's place, and that becomes the focus mm -hmm. and the fetish. So um, people might think that the term fetish has to exclusively refer to a perversion, mm -hmm. such as like a shoe fetish or something like that, underwear fetish, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be that at all. My approach, my interpretation of the fetish is um, some object, it's usually an object, mm -hmm. but it can also, you know, ideas can be fetishized, uh, concepts can be fetishized. It's usually some kind of, you know, sort of, uh, I suppose, yeah, really uh, crystallized preoccupation that, that keeps coming back. Mm -hmm. And there is a kind of, there is an erotic relation to it in the in the sense of if it's not sexual, it can be what turns the person on in some other way, mm -hmm. activates their life force, etc. And I think I think in the field of fashion, um, the, uh, that discipline in itself is already primed for objects to become center points of interest and desire mm -hmm. um, because of the way that that whole you know, realm functions. It's the selling. I mean, we've already been talking about this. Yeah, I mean, all of... I, I always think that when we're going to do a series that everything is separated very neatly into mm. little boxes, but actually it feels like we're kind of talking about the same thing. Yeah, there's a lot episode. of overlap. Things just continuously yeah. go through, no matter how different I think they yeah. are. Um, and then, I mean, fetishism also gets referred to in uh, economic terms as well. Yeah. That's right. Uh, because Karl Marx came up with commodity fetishism. Commodity fetishism, yeah. And that's kind of interesting because it's more about the way that the tradition and uh, the things around economics, the mm. um, sort of theories yes. and uh, principles and actual commodities themselves kind of distract us from the the human elements yeah so I, and which is a kind of how i understand commodity fetishism yeah. which is also kind of an interesting thing because yeah. some fetishism is an interesting in the way that we can ascribe magical properties to things mm. and that can really help us or you know or turn us on either sexually or not but too much of it can really just make you disconnected from the other person in the yeah. scenario the other people in the scenario and that's so uh, that's really interesting that it's kind of used as um, a way to explain the the distancing effect that economics can have on you. Yeah, you, know, you can forget the me means of production, factories, people, like tiny little hands, like sewing mm. your bags and all that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It's just an interesting parallel. I suppose that's why he chose it. I think so, um, and I also think that um, 
Yeah, absolutely. The, the this idea of dehumanizing some aspect of the other mm-hmm. by fetishizing something about them, that's also a very uh, convenient defense mechanism um, in relation to in psychoanalysis what's referred to, what's referred to as castration anxiety. The idea that there's something about someone else that poses a threat or is intimidates, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, somehow risks, um, you know, removing something from you, mm-hmm. removing some status symbol, some beloved object from you. So in, in, in psychoanalysis, castration anxiety specifically has to do with the removal of uh, a, a beloved aspect of yourself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be like literally the cutting off of a penis. Yeah. It can be, um, you know, the, the, for instance, um, the, the film noir really capitalizes on this thing about um, the femme fatale being a castra- an, an agent of castration. She threatens to remove something important, usually from the male protagonist, mm-hmm. whether it's you know uh, stealing his money or um, removing his status in society, diminishing his um, reputation in some way, or physically assaulting him in some way, you know, like literally removing something from him. And um, there's a theory uh, that the voyeuristic uh, behavior of focusing on body parts, usually of women, is some kind of response, the fetishization of, let's say, the woman Mm -hmm. in relation to her potential as a castrating agent that that is actually a defense mechanism um, by dehumanizing her. We're just focusing on one aspect of her, and that becomes the fix- fixation. The rest of her is forgotten about. It's almost like erased. Mm-hmm. So that her autonomy, her subjectivity, are th- those are no longer important, precisely because uh, what she represents as a whole is too threatening. Interesting, because it directly reminds me of what uh, Bruce Weber did to Peter Johnson in our second episode when we talked about Chapsui. Exactly. Um, and then it also reminds me, I was just, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, since actually watching Crimes of Passion, I've been thinking a lot about intimacy and the ways in which we avoid it and the ways in which we now are very technically enabled to avoid it Mm. and uh, during this conversation I just remembered that once my friend Dom told me that he had a friend that only went out with girls with a certain amount of Instagram followers oh right that's a fetish that is a fetish (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yeah that's a I don't know I don't know what brought that into my mind but Mm. I just felt the need to tell you that 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 exists out there and I think that it's actually not an uncommon fetish no yeah. I think he probably is conscious of it as an able, is able to articulate that. Mm-hmm. But probably a lot of people are doing the same thing, but unaware. Yeah. It's completely unconscious. So that that becomes something, a desirable object in someone. And if they, they, if they don't quite reach that threshold, mm-hmm. then they become undesirable. Yeah. It sounds crazy to say it, but I'm sure that a lot of people are unconsciously falling into that. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately it is... Yeah, it is about the fetish is usually about the some fixation, some stagnation and preoccupation around some some object that is um actually almost like the way that screen memories function actually 
it's that's not really that important, but it represents something else. Mm-hmm. It covers up something else that is important. Yeah. And that's unspeakable. That's the impossible realm. Mm-hmm. So the object itself is it feels like safer ground. You, you yeah. know, we can kind of exist in that realm and become obsessed, but we can't dare to think about what lurks behind that yeah I want to know so much what's terrifying about women with less Instagram followers <laughs> you know what threat those women yeah those women possess you know it's uh it's exactly fascinating anyway exactly. If, let us know your thoughts let us know your thoughts mm. absolutely um so crimes of passion loosely yeah. um is about a woman played by Kathleen Turner Joanna Joanna, yeah. Um, who works as a fashion designer by day, although we don't see as much of her fashion designer life as I would have liked. No. Um, because you are introduced to her not as fashion designer Joanna, but as a prostitute, worker, yeah. or sorry, sex worker, called China Blue. Yeah. Um, in an amazing wig. It's one of the, it's a great wig film. Um, oh yeah. It's also a great um I'm really into blue dress films. Ah. And I'm starting to think that I'd maybe want to do something with blue dress films like Possession where oh she wears god. a series of blue dresses. Yeah, oh my god. Um and then I didn't even think about Blue Velvet until I rewatched it a couple I of nights know. ago. But there is some there is there is like a series of films with women in blue dresses yeah. and really And I know that Allure magazine wrote something about women in blue dresses, but they weren't writing about this kind of cinema. They were writing about um uh, Disney characters yeah. and um uh, Grace Kelly and To Catch a Thief and uh, The Wizard of Oz and that kind of mm. thing so they interpreted it as women on the verge of uh, rejecting what life's given them and choosing something more exciting Wow! which I could you could fit that into a reading of these films as well but I think, I think so. there's something more specifically sexual about the blue dress in all of these films in possession in this in this well, so. there's something to that, and I, in the eighty, I think it was the eighties or maybe early nineties, the um, the 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 band Depeche Mode, mm-hmm. they have a song called Blue Dress. Oh, really? Yeah, it's great. Oh, okay, I'll listen to it. It's like a power ballad. That's interesting. And it's very, very, it, it's it's pretty hot. <laughs> like, this, I mean, I really like that song. If you need someone to make the montage for your project, oh yeah, I'll, I, can, I will. I, I'll, I can help you, yeah. and we can use Blue Dress. Yeah, I need to I need to look into that a little bit more. And there's a devil in a blue dress oh, film yeah. as well, which I haven't seen. So anyway, but that's just not the point. But that's um, another link here. So we're introduced to her as yeah. sex worker China Blue, who has a blue dress and who mm. is very adept at becoming whoever her clients want yeah. her to be. Um, whether that's some kind of all American beauty queen, as she is in the first sequence, or a rape victim, yeah. or a um, a brutal cop, a brutal cop, which is a great scene, really good. <laughs> it's kind of a farcical story. A little yeah. bit. There's a there's a character, Rev- the Reverend, yeah, uh, Anthony Perkins, Anthony, yeah, who is sort of this kind of uh, who is both sexually obsessed with her, but also wants to save her. As yeah. He um, and they have this kind of strange relationship filled with sexual tension, which has a surprising effect on her. I would have thought that she would... And she laughs at him a lot, mm. but she also seems to be very, very affected by him. Yeah. Um, and then there is another character... Bobby. Bobby. Yeah. Who is he's in... an electronic store owner. Yeah. He's like a kind of... Um, he's a family guy. Yeah. He's got a wife and kids, but he moonlights doing surveillance work yeah there's something about his wife wanting to have a hot tub or a jacuzzi or something else equally 80s and he (laughs) takes on this extra work watching china blue in order to make the money and the reason that he's watching her is that her 
is interesting. So it also just an interesting little scene in itself. Her boss at the fashion company, yeah, oh, doesn't yeah. trust her because she doesn't have a love life. Yeah, which is really interesting. Since no one works that hard, I think she's selling designs to our competitors. So he hires this guy to watch her, and then he ends up getting getting into bed with her, and they kind of have a relationship. And it's all this very like farcical, complicated plot of it's very absurd. People, yeah, it's very absurd. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's not easy to explain, but there's so much there, despite that. Because also Bobby, we see him attending group therapy sessions. Yes, although he says that he's only there to support a friend, and he's not actually there because no. he needs any therapy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because it turns out that um, his wife Amy has lost interest in in sex. And so he fears, all, he's got this kind of fear that their marriage is in trouble as mm-hmm. well. There's all this, there's a scene where he, they're at a barbecue and he turns up as a penis or something. Yeah, it's it's really strange because... <laughs> it's really bizarre. It's a really bizarre thing. And it's actually based on something the screenwriter used to have a friend at university who did that. Oh. Yeah. Um, I don't know, just masculinities and the various, <laughs> the various types in the various decades. Um... Barry Sandler, written by Barry Sandler. That's Barry's friend. I listened to another podcast where someone has an interview with him. I can't remember what the podcast was. I was just searching Crimes of Passion to see if I could get a bit of background info. And just, I love a, I love a clever American older man. He was just great. Like he was like he's really good looking. He teaches at university. (laughs) He teaches like screenwriting at university, and he had all these great things to say. Wow. but um, yeah. yeah, just putting it out there that I've got a crush on Barry Sandler, um, who I didn't know, I didn't know who he was until about two days ago. Um, but it isn't. It's a really interesting film because, despite the fact that it's about a sex worker, it's very like gratuitous, you know, vision of a sex worker. It's very. It seems like it plays into male fantasies. It has moments of toxic masculinity, like the human penis uh, incident, where he just pretends to be an ejaculating penis, and mm. his wife's furious and humiliated but at the same time actually everyone everyone in the film including his mm. wife who is sexually uninterested in him and it and admits that she was never particularly enjoying any of it yeah. throughout the however many years of their marriage even she is portrayed has has really she's portrayed as a as a real person with levels you know she's yeah. i think she's a really she seems like initially she comes off as a nagging wife but there's mm. this like deep unhappiness yeah. behind her nagging and it's an unhappiness that she doesn't know how to deal with mm. and I think that's really effectively portrayed and then he yeah. kind of comes off as a jerk in that scene but he's also re- he's all you know everyone's this really remarkable well-rounded well-written character that's it and uh, you don't expect it to be because it's such no. a trashy looking <laughs> film and like the you know like all of like the smooth jazz and the neon and and just the subject matter, you you wouldn't expect it to be as good as it is. No, you're so right. You, you, you're watching it and you're kind of, all the visual signifiers are priming you to expect a certain level of like shallowness from yeah. everyone. But actually, you, you end up realizing, wow, there's a there's so much complexity here. It really is. Everyone's full of complexity. Everyone's yeah. really interesting. No one's kind of judged, in a, which I really like. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually, yeah, it's, it's really so forward true. thinking and ahead of its time. It's amazing. Yeah. And um I mean there is this sort of idea that she's I don't know is struggling with intimacy in some way. Yeah. Which feels a little judgmental. Hmm. But it, it it sort of doesn't really stop her doing anything that, no. that she ends up doing. So it's uh, yeah. And she's quite good humored about the the things that she does. Yeah, she's like, very good humored. Yeah, like she's um she doesn't 
I was trying to work out, like, is she just conducting some kind of experiment? Like, what's she getting out of this? Because she clearly doesn't need the money. No. Like, well, there's a bit where she burns oh, yeah. the money because she, she gets fifty dollar bills for all, you know, for yeah. each, from each customer. Yeah. And there's a bit where she just sets fire to one. Yeah. And that's really, you know, because we've kind of ended up talking about women and money in almost every episode. Yeah. And this is this is kind of the opposite of this is a woman who's, I mean, who clearly has enough money. She has that yeah. amazing apartment. And she's, but she's still, there's still something very, there's still a very specific relationship with money. Like she's enjoying money in some way, even if she's enjoying destroying it. There's still, yeah, she's yeah. still got this preoccupation <laughs> with money. Money's yeah. important. Yeah, because she mentions it. Yeah. She, she she makes a point to say, put, you know, leave the money on the dresser. Like exactly. it's, 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 it comes back all the time. But when it's, what she does with it, when she gets it though, it's a different story. I think there's a, there's a scene where she, throws out her gum like she sticks her gum on the 50 pound the 50 dollar note or yes, something and then she is. just throws that, it away is that what she does instead of sets fire to it Did i imagine that she sets fire to it oh you know what why do i also remember her setting fire to something did, I, I, maybe she just destroys money all the way through it <laughs> i don't know and there's there's a bit where she tucks some money into her she's dressed up oh, as yeah. a nun and she tucks money into her like, wimple or whatever it's called <laughs> And it's funny, yeah. So she is very. I mean, I wonder. Mm. It's almost as if I don't know. If I wonder if money is just a, a, some kind of symbol of masculinity, and she doesn't respect it in some way. Yeah, like almost as if she's. Um, yeah, you're right. Like she, it's just she's sort of desecrating it. Yeah, she does. Yeah, it's really, and um, especially for someone for whom I mean, I don't know. It's really interesting because she does yeah. seem to have. Her job, like her day job, is all about appearances. Her night job is all about appearances. Yeah. It's all about um, such displays of not necessarily displays of wealth, but displays of taste and displays things of like taste. that. Yeah. That, so it's really and creating an aesthetic. Yes. And wearing different personas because effectively she's leading a double life. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder whether, on some level, it's like she's. To, for me, what, what it's almost like what the film is hinting at is that the the usual trope in society, you know, the usual assumption, the mm -hmm. preconception that people make about sex work, is that the people who end up doing it on some level, they're doing it out of desperation. Yes, you know, they, they they're doing it because um, I think the film is kind of challenging that notion yeah. that that someone who might be attracted to work like that in, in a very earnest way that can't be true it must be because at the end of it they need that money they're mm -hmm. after the money so the fact that she's in, in in a very obvious way um sort of making it a point to receive the money but then when she, what she does with the money is she sort of discards it she casts it aside in in some ways it's inviting the viewer to to to, to maybe entertain that ah that might not be the only motivation here mm -hmm. there's something else driving her and I think she clearly enjoys sex yes. there's a playful aspect of it that she um embarks on and she's very humorous like she's got some fantastic lines in that oh film oh my gosh she's so good some like, of the lines she says is Great. Yeah, like yeah. sometimes I had I was making that like I had to rewind mm -hmm. and watch the same line over and over again because her delivery and her just the sharpness and she's so she she looks like such an empowered character but also not in some ways. Mm -hmm. She's so it's such a beautiful balance and ambivalence, you know, um there with her. Um but I guess in terms of 
what there's so many interesting moments for me like when the reverend so this anthony perkins character um again it, this is genius casting mm-hmm. um he's clearly obsessed with her and he's there is this kind of strange dynamic between them. There's this back and forth of ex- exchanging words between them. Um, he says he wants to save her. But then he also tells her, you know, she. I think at one point she asks him, why, why do you follow me? Mm-hmm. And he says, because I'm you. Yes. Or something, right? And I was like, wow, okay, what is what the hell does this mean? Because if now if we're invited to almost like blur these identities, for me they're now no longer even real people. They're now it's all it's it's, it's an allegory of mm-hmm. some kind. So what is it? And the fact that he's got this this adjacent room to where she does she conducts her business with these clients, and he's peeking through it's very Hitchcockian. Yeah. <laughs> he's peeking through this peephole into uh, you know, the next room, and he's gazing upon her sexual activities. He's clearly obsessed. His, he's got pictures of, like, por- pornographic images of women on his wall, um, and he's constantly looking at her, you know. It's not clear what exactly he's doing. He's got this strange weapon that is like a dildo or yeah, something, or like vibrator. Sharp. It's sharp, yeah. It's like, what are you going to do, fuck someone to death? Um, which I love is these lines. Essentially, all he wants to do, really, it's like a proto um, knife d- uh, strap on in Seven. Yeah. Oh God! Yeah, that's so true. Which I actually, I was talking to my friend Jordan, and she was, we were talking about Seven. She was like, "Yeah, you know, like the nose bit, and the and the mm. the you know the bit where the guy eats himself to death." And I was like, and she was like, "It's just horrible." It's just, and I was like, Jordan, like that's not the horrible bit. The horrible bit is the knife dildo. And she was like, "What?" <laughs> and the poor woman had so this is my friend this is my friend Jordan who I do a film club with called Zodiac Film Club but she had blocked that out she just didn't remember it and then I told her about it and I could see her face remembering it and I just wanted to take it I wanted to take it back I couldn't believe I'd been so stupid I would just kind of thought that she was not affected by it so I was saying that how they know how can you I, I, how can you find those bits horrifying and not find this bit horrifying? Yeah. But she, poor thing, forgotten it. And now she knows about it. She's got it in her head because of me. <laughs> and I feel really bad. Just okay. This is just, I'm just ghoulish and horrible. I remember all these horrible things and then I want to tell them to other people to minimise how much they scare me. <laughs> but I've really upset someone by <laughs> doing that. Next time you've got the impulse, yeah. tell me. I'll tell because you. I'm so desensitised exactly, at this one. <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so stupid. She, but she just well, her face just fell and she was oh I feel really I feel really scared and upset <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah. no but you're right it is a proto it is yeah type for that everything's been in something else before yeah absolutely um, every, yeah absolutely and, and and that's so interesting to me like yeah. because he's we're we're kind of invited to imagine that he's a man of the cloth or something mm-hmm. he's like a, apparently a man of god or something he's a, he calls himself a reverend so we're invited to maybe assume that maybe he's, I don't know, is he abstinent? Like, he's not sexual, he doesn't have a sex life, but he is clearly fetishizing mm-hmm. sexuality, and in particular, looking at her and voyeuristically following her and her every move, her every sexual move. Now, for me, this is the ultimate manifestation of the threat of this castration, cast, you know, Castragent. There you go. That's castrated. a perfect part, Whoa. <laughs> Castrating agent. 
Okay, that, somebody out there has to make a, form a band it's and a call it Castragent. The Castragent. The Castragent. The Castragent. The Castragent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Someone out there, please do yeah. it. Great. We'll come to your game. <laughs> And so for me, she's the, because she's doing, she, you know, she's, he perceives her as this kind of libertine doing whatever she wants. She's not, she doesn't worry about the consequences. She's just going with the flow of her desire. He can't do that mm -hmm. for, for whatever reason. And so to diminish her overwhelming potential of kind of moving into his space, into his desire, he has to fetishize her. It, you know, actually, uh, in psychoanalysis, it's referred to the, the, the voyeur who fixates on a body part and, and fetishizes an aspect of the other. The, this term is used, this, this kind of phrase, uh, strategies of containment. Mm. That's what the fetish does. That's interesting. It's a strategy of containing the desire of the other into this little neat little box of the object mm -hmm. so that it doesn't spill over. But it's interesting because what happens when they do come together yeah. <laughs> is that, in fact, nothing is contained and everything becomes a hundred times more chaotic yeah. with both of them. You know, she, she's really, she's, you see her, in fact, I feel like the way she manages her other clients are strategies of containment. She knows, oh, yeah. she knows how to handle all of them. You know, there's the guy that wants to rape her. So they, you know, she, they do that play acting thing where she goes and into like the dark room, she can't turn on the light and then he jumps on her. And she's told him some kind of story about her dad abusing her when she was, yeah. when she was little. Cause that's, he likes that he gets off, off on it. She almost can't remember that she's told it to him. <laughs> And, you know, and uh, and you get the sense that she's just made it up, you know, and yeah, she, like, you yeah. know, rolls her eyes when she's talking to him. And all of them, you know, they, she has these ways of managing all of them. Oh, yeah. And She's containing. You know, she's containing everyone. Oh, yeah. And, but it seems like when they're, when her and the Reverend are together, neither one can really contain the other. No. They upset each other a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just they disturb. They bother each yeah, other. Yeah, they bother each other. In fact, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So the point that... Their their desire does spill into the other, to the point that spoiler alert, they even in that final scene, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. All fans of Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, need to watch this incredible. film for that reason. They exchange clothes. Mm -hmm. They, you know, that blew my mind. I did not see something like that coming in this film. I know that to the point that all the time that he was telling her, "I'm you." Mm -hmm. That to me really indicated that there is this kind of allegorical dance between uh, desire wanting to flow ever forward, and there's always this thing, this nagging, con you know, super ego or whatever it is, mm -hmm. this this uh, punitive sort of containing force that um, is obsessed and is fetishizing mm -hmm. desire and it cannot it, it tries to prevent it from moving forward it tries to contain but it can't as you say ultimately there's chaos there it's a chaotic space this is not a neat or ordered uh affair because actually this reminds me also of uh stanley kubrick's film full metal jacket in the beginning of that film um it's you know it's a war film. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at soldiers uh, at a training site, basically being broken down as individuals and kind of dehumanized by this brutal drill sergeant because he wants to make good soldiers out of them that they'll obey commands. 
but he tries to create a very ordered world. Mm. It's very punitive. It's very strict. It's extreme in in its tidiness, and there's huge punishments for people who deviate. They, everyone has to toe the line. So we have now in the first half of that film this world of order, this or, or at least on the surface, super tidy, uh, really tightly run ship. But then the second half of Full Metal Jacket is pure chaos. It's war, <laughs> you know. So you just realize that, that actually this is a facade. You know, this this fetishized world of everything being in its place and everything having a label and everything being uh, contrived. This is not sustainable. It's actually covering up chaos. Mm. It's covering up this flow of desire that's the tidal waves are always getting bigger and bigger all the time, you know? It's interesting because you don't seem to be able to have one element of that light of life without another. Yeah, exactly. You know, because I think in the next film we're going to be talking about someone who does... There's a scene where, you know, the character does give in to chaos and then immediately wants that white picket fence... Yeah. you know existence back because it's too much for him um but to continue on with crimes of passion yeah. did i mean again this is another it's a, it reminds me of blood and black lace in the sense of hmm. um it's very it's aesthetically really brilliant and it has a character in it who's a fashion designer yeah um, and i'm going to ask the same question that i asked about um blood and black lace is is it important that she's a fashion designer is it important is it integral to the film that she works in fashion or that she yeah that she produce make cr- creates clothes i think so yeah what do you think i think that um i think definitely because of the way that she not maybe not i don't know if it was so much that she was a fashion designer yeah but there was something about her um the way the, her kind of agency over aesthetics throughout this film mm-hmm. uh, that reminded me of uh, what we've already spoken about with Cam and the Love Witch. Yeah. It really reminded me of like this, the co- sort of concept of like the female auteur. auteur. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 you know, because, you know, I, te- I tend to think of an auteur as a, a very masculine concept and what happens when a woman is in charge of every aspect of like a world. Yeah. You know, and even and I do love the bits where you get to see into her real apartment. Yeah. And you have her desk where she, you know, this right, this beautiful desk where she draws standing up and all of these uh sort of uh like draw like Japanese erotic drawings on the walls and things like that. And then she also yeah. has this other space which is hers, which is this pink and blue um sort of stage, like sex stage. It's just got this bed in the middle. So there is something satin sheets, satin sheets, and it's all yeah. So there was something about her, um, her ability to be in sort of complete aesthetic control of her surroundings and of herself that I found that is is really contributes to how empower how empowered she is as mm-hmm. a character, and it's something that maybe oh, yeah. you don't um, you don't always get in female characters. You know, you get mm. you you have women looking amazing in a in a, a spaces that are not their own you know like in mm. film noir it's always it's women looking incredible in these very masculine spaces yeah um but with her it's it's like she kind of inhabits you know she, she kind of bleeds out into every space that she occupies oh it's yeah all it's all about it's all about her and i like so i don't know it's just i think it's important in the sense that she exercises so much control over the just the aesthetics of the film uh, the other day i found out that Mm. I was asked, um, thinking about Myers Briggs personality types, and oh, yeah. I was asking someone who knew 
quite a bit about it, I was saying, what's the opposite of um, intuitive? Because I've only ever met other intuitive people. And he said, oh, it's sensing. Mm. And I said, what, what is the difference to that? And he said, well, sensing is, um, if you're intuitive, you, you know things that you can't see. And if you're sensing, you can see, you, you have a very, very good grasp on things that you can see. And a lot of fashion designers have sensing oh. personality types. And uh, it's really, it's a type that I now know that I've met and not been able to understand because okay. I find it very hard to understand people that, that see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rather than just guess and know and assume like I do. Me too. Um, I'm so, intuitive as well. And so uh, and I, I feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe she kind of embodies that. Oh, but, wow, that's such a good yeah, and I, I, interpretation. And, that, and those people often, I feel like they have they have not just control of their visual surroundings, but they have a certain control of, over me um, because they're, they're working in things. Intangible you, things. Intangible things all the time. Yeah. And I'm I'm working in ephemeral things all the yeah. time. So I somehow at times feel a little bit less of a person when I come across someone who mm. is um who is who I think has a very sensing personality. And uh, I think she ha yeah, there's something about that. She's the most powerful person in the room because she deals in the scene. Wow. Um and in the <laughs> in the, you know, and I don't know. And actually in a way, um, what invites her boss's suspicion about her is that because she deals in the scene and, and you know, th there's, it's almost as if, I don't know, is there something about uh, the auteur who's so kind of in control of these tangible forces mm -hmm. and they're able to kind of manipulate and maneuver and work comfortably in that realm? Um, it, I watched this film and I think if her character had been a man, there's no way that her boss, that that person's boss would have been like, there's something wrong with that fellow over there. You know, he doesn't have a love interest mm -hmm. or we need to follow him and find out what's going on. This might be corporate espionage, you know, like this kind of thing. And um, it's like, it's as if the assumption is made that because she's a woman, she has to necessarily even be in the realm of the ephemeral. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she is so very much comfortable, you know, uh, even in relationships, the sex can just be this exchange of, uh, you know, uh, an in a physically intimate moment Fluids. with someone. An exchange of fluids. <laughs> Sorry. I just, yeah, exactly. If you weren't going to say it, I had to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's just exchange, you know, bodily fluids, and then off you go. You don't need mm. to hang around here. Yeah, and you money. Know, and money, yeah, 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 exactly. You you know, we, we, um, I'm providing a service, and you pay me for that, mm. uh, and then you, and then you're off. I can, I can, you know, I, I look at a character like her, and she, they, that, it's kind of like almost an exaggerated manifestation of someone who um, is very, very comfortable just experiencing the physical and having a very straightforward exchange with someone, um, a measurable exchange, and then they can be on their way. She doesn't, she doesn't, she, she doesn't then kind of linger on any uh, strings or anything like that. Mm -hmm. There doesn't have to be anything else besides that. And I think the film is challenging those assumptions that we unconsciously make about women. Yeah, it really is. I was really impressed. And because Ken too. Russell, who, I don't know, I just some, somehow assumed to be a bit of a misogynist and a bit of a pervert. I know, I know. In I, a negative way. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, exactly. You know. um, but no. He really impressed me with this. Yeah. Like, 
Ken Russell, so he did The Devils. He did The Devils. He also did, um, I think he did The Women in Love. That's right. Film, yeah. which my, is my mom's, one of my mom's favourite films, actually. Yeah. Um, and he was on Celebrity Big Brother. Was he now? <laughs> God, that's so weird. He, yeah, he entered the Celebrity Big Brother house. I can't remember what year it was, but it was the one with the race row scandal with Shilpa Shetty. Oh, God. He was in that house. I think he was the first one evicted. Yeah, no Poor one Ken. knows, knows <laughs> no who one he knew. is. No. Nobody um, watching Big Brother. I mean, no offense. No, no, you know. most, but it's, it's true. It's sad because it's true. Um, what did you think? What was what were your thoughts yeah. about her profession, her daytime profession? It's interesting because we just, as you say earlier, we don't really see her working in that realm mm. at all. It's as if, so we, we understand that because she's a designer and she clearly has a very strong uh, like a very sophisticated understanding of art. There's, mm -hmm. I love the splices in the film of all the yeah. works of art. I like the Klimt stuff, you know, the kiss and all these other things. Uh, and even in, there was a Magritte one as well. Do you remember the, the Veiled Lovers? Oh, no, I didn't know. Oh, yes, no, I did notice that one. Yeah. Yeah, that was, inter that was an interesting thing. It was, because that was when she was... I think it was when she was having sex with Bobby. It was because I I clocked it too. Yeah. Um. Because there is like a there's a, a sort of unplanned intimacy in right. that, that sort of sexual experience, and um, I don't know. It felt it felt significant in some way. Yeah. Like my the way I interpreted that moment because she suddenly winced like when she when the splicing moment happened and we're meant to believe that it's almost like an intrusive thought. She mm -hmm. thinks about artworks you know, when, as, as she goes about her day or what her activities. And that seemed, it did, you're right, I think it did seem significant because I remember reading that my kid said about that painting that he meant it to, to represent that in, in any relationship, ultimately, it, there's always, we reach a point where we're strangers to each other, mm -hmm. you know, we're veiled figures to each other and we can't escape that. And th this is for me b happening big time in something like Eyes Wide Shut, where there's literally people with masks kissing each other, yeah. you know. Um, but maybe for me in that moment, I'm watching that and I'm thinking she, that th that's a moment where she risks losing control. She she is that sensing type. I fully agree with your interpretation. That's so it's so insightful. I think she likes to just remain in that world where she can predict and feel comfortable with the boundaries that she set and the autorial vision of how she conducts herself in on a stage, you know, in a performance. And suddenly if she's reminded that actually I quite like this guy, but no, ultimately you know, he's a stranger to me. I can't trust him. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't turn I can't really let go. I can't, there's too much of a risk here. I don't know what's happening. I can't guess because mm. I, I can't intuit. Yes. You know? Yeah, she can't. And that's partly why I think um, the Reverend is so... Yeah. Uh, it bothers her so much. Yeah. Because it does take... You know, he. she keeps trying to have sex with him. Like, there's a couple of scenes where it seems like she might manage to seduce him and he won't... You know, he, and that doesn't happen. Yeah. And uh, And I think... Yeah, she doesn't need to to try with anyone else. You know, she didn't like she knows what they want because they display it. But if this guy is like is covered in sort of layers of of lies, essentially, and, so it's really yeah. hard to tell. And we're confused as well. The audience is has has is any more clued in than she no. is about him. So yeah, and he's also very repressed. Yeah, I think Anthony Perkins came up with that character. 
Wow. Or had a lot of input. Because um, you were saying there was some method acting there? He got ordained. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, my and God. I think that the, uh, like Joey on Friends. Yes, like Joey on Friends. <laughs> As the, insp- the inspiration, probably, for Joey on Friends. Um, and uh, mm. I think that the screenwriter said that he was originally not supposed to be a minister. He was supposed to be a, or mm. a reverend or whatever you call it in America. He was supposed to be a fanatic film, a, a film fan. Oh my god! An obsessive film fan, which I think would make sense because probably Ken Russell had, had trouble with uh, ratings, you know, ratings boards, and uh, oh, yeah. it wasn't quite Video Nasty's time, but it was coming up to that, you know. Yeah. So I think that might have been where it started. Yeah. But I think it was Anthony Perkins that wanted to take it to, who was interested in religious fundamentalism. Oh yeah. Basically. So that's where it kind of came from. That makes so much sense because for me, a film fan is, you know, I, I, I'm speaking as a film fan, as a, you know, film maniac, a fanatic about film, cinema. There is so much voyeurism there. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so wrapped up in the enjoyment of looking. Yes. Um, and so, it, because the way that he, uh, you know, he's behind this wall and he's looking through this peephole and it's pure kind of lawless seeing, you know, just like the cinema viewer. Yeah. Um, where he's peeking, and he, but the but the object of his voyeurism doesn't know mm-hmm. is kind of none the wiser. Um, so it feels a lot like a lot of times I'm I look at cinema and I'm like it's like I'm a peeping tom, you know. <laughs> better better that I'm a cinephile than I'm like creeping in people's windows. Mm-hmm. I promise to never do that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like there's this kind of level of lawless seeing that is very um it's very appealing. It's yeah. very compelling. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think the clothes element is so important because when, here's the thing, when, uh, and again, this is a spoiler, but when Bobby, uh, you know, he, in the final scene, he, he, he arrives at, at, uh, Joanna's door and at her apartment, at that point, he overhears that there's some kind of struggle going on inside her apartment. This is when, obviously, um... That, you know the reverend is is there and he's physically assaulting uh, Joanna to the point that he even straps her to her drawing table mm. like almost like a crucifixion like yeah. a kind of because he, she's got her arms splayed out you know like tied up to the to, to the to the desk so there's almost like a kind of religious imagery there as if she's sacrificed on her work mm-hmm. or something. You know, there's something, some some level of sacrifice tied in with what she does for a living yeah. or her fixation on appearances and, uh, you know, the aesthetic creation of clothes, whatever. Um, but it's when, when he turns up in the room, like Bobby, uh, he hears the screaming and the struggle. He's concerned about her safety. So he breaks in, he breaks down the door. When he turns up, we and... You know, we as the viewer and Bobby together, we see the figure of what appears to be Joanna dressed up as her China Blue character. Mm. But then that same figure is kind of attacked uh, by what we think is the Reverend, but it's like the reverse. Mm. And so ultimately it's Joanna dressed as the Reverend in like his outfit, destroying the China blue character. Yes. And that's when she, she's kind of, um, that's, that's the moment where she's finally liberated. Mm. Like the spell almost lifts at that moment. And then we're led to assume that 
she embarks on maybe a more intimate relationship yeah. with Bobby. Because now he's separated from his wife, and they seem to be together, apparently. And that's interesting to me. Like, what is that? They, they, these two characters, the Reverend and Joanna, they just bleed into each other. It's like there's no formal contour that really distinguishes them. Mm -hmm. They're so interchangeable. It's like you said, they are really two sides of the same coin. There's some force, there's some tension that draws them together. They're very magnetic. You see, now that you said that, and and I think about it, it kind of is start. I I feel a bit negative towards it because I'm yeah. I'm starting to think that it's a little bit like the ending of the Eyes of Laura Mars. Oh yeah. Um, it it does feel like it's another woman. Uh, abandoning her creativity for the safety of a an intimate relationship. Mm. You know, we've seen that a lot mm. in we've seen that a lot in the films that we've watched yeah, over yeah. this over this time. And that, you know, it it's if you think of Joanna as just an artist, yeah. you know, which she is, and if all of her creations are actually interchangeable, whether they're you know, sportswear in the day or China blue at night. Yeah. Or, you know, these scenarios, this room, all of it. Mm. And so then maybe you can kind of see the death of China Blue, the the symbolic death of China Blue wow. is a little bit sad, actually. It's, uh, well, it's not sad, it's just, it's just, uh, maybe it is necessary, but it's just, it is just that suggestion of, um, of uh, creative, uh, creative financial success. Yeah. Or... You know, remember in Cam where she has an orgasm because she's reached oh, yeah. like a certain number on the Cam Girl chart. That's right. Um, or versus the real orgasms <laughs> that yeah. she's apparently, you know, that we're led to believe that she's having with Bobby. So like you can't, you can't, yeah. as a woman, you can't. It's just like at the end of Blue Velvet, where what you know, where someone who's very sexualized throughout the whole film then just becomes a mother, and yeah. is quite dowdy. It's just like these two, these two types of womanhood can't exist in the same space. They have to be separated. Yeah. yeah. And even when you when there's you know two filmmakers who who actually represent women really well, it's still this like the the somehow combining those two women is unbearable. Yeah. And, and undoable actually, and and it kind of I mean I I say it's sad but maybe it's kind of true a little bit you know that it is you can't I mean. You can be both, but not, I don't think maybe not at the same time. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Maybe it's just that the impracticality of having to be both at the same time. Yeah. It's like maddening. Yeah. So there has to be like a neat, almost like a compartmentalization, if not an outright destruction of the other. Mm -hmm. It's just more of a kind of neat separation yeah it just occurred to me that it was really interesting though that she was dressed as the reverend yeah killing the real rever reverend with his weapon this um vibrator knife <laughs> um but she she still remained alive mm -hmm. in his garb yes that's true and so i'm now wondering does that mean that she like, what exactly has died here? Because the China Blue character, um, was she really uh, an emblem of, like, creative success? Or was she just another fetishist? Like, because, you know, you rightly mm -hmm. said, she staged things. She, she had a strategy of containment in her relationships. 
um, there was a kind of fixation there. Mm -hmm. So what is she really getting rid of? You know, she's getting rid of him. She's getting rid of that reverend in 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 the form of China Blue. Mm -hmm. She's getting rid of that fetishist freak, that voyeur. Yeah. Um, that in a way, China Blue was as well. I don't know. No, it's true. But is, isn't maybe a good artist quite a good I fetishist know, as well? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, um, this is what we've been wondering ever eternal, since. Yeah. You know, ever since um, My Fair Lady. Yeah, really. It's you whether know? you can, you know, what being an, a, a good artist means and with you, you whether you what you have to sacrifice and who you else sacrifice. you have to sacrifice to get into a maybe in a meaningful exchange whatever that means mm. intimacy whatever it is but it's not some reductive exchange like some transactional exchange with someone where you're giving something some to someone tan, something tangible and they give something back to you mm. it's a neat exchange here now we're in a much more fluid uh potentially unqual you know unqualifiable space where the intimacy is much more difficult to define so neatly like mm -hmm. it's a little bit more it's a little bit more ambivalent and it's scarier because it's ambivalent God, we can't predict intimacy is so scary in it this is. film so terrifying <laughs> Um, maybe just for me at the moment as well. I don't know. No, but think, it, it uh, really is. Yeah. Because also, do you remember when Bobby turns up at her at her door at one point and he says, "Oh, you said I could turn up here if I ever needed anyone to talk to," and so I've I've come I've come round. And Kathleen Turner's face, she's great. She's so expressive, and she kind of like it's such a fleeting moment in that scene. But she looked she looked like she was about to start crying, mm -hmm. but she was really happy. She yeah. couldn't express it. She was like, "Yeah, just come on in." But she's her eyes like welled up it's like just that little demonstration of intimacy it it was so it has such an impact on her it does i mean just know? that you know sometimes just talking about about it can make me well up as well yeah. you know but actually my friend kirsty who's a, like a very is a, a listener of yeah. the podcast and uh, emails me and texts me a lot with her sort of thoughts on it yeah uh messaged me something which i feel like actually relates to these films as well but it was about last our last episode um she said uh i really enjoyed what you said about anna winter making herself look orificeless hmm. uh it makes maybe it makes women more powerful to remove any visible holes i always thought that miley cyrus seemed like a walking orifice to me her mouth is so circular and fleshy her lips are the same shape as a blow-up sex doll and um when hmm. i received the text i had like a very quick, like two minute cry. Yeah. Um. Just because I the it I didn't strike me before, but the um the removing um being orificeless in that way, removing there is that sort of very strong contrast between Joanna and China Blue, um and there and just the idea of um keeping yourself safe also just means that you're keeping yourself protected against being loved. Yeah. And it's really. It's, it's really heartbreaking because yeah. you just absolutely can't have you can't open yourself up to one without opening yourself up to up to the other exactly um and it just it's so difficult it's a risk mm. it's always a risk no matter what yeah. even for people who've been together for a very long time the, the heart is always on the, the line yeah you, you know? must be constantly shutting down and opening up again shutting yeah. down and opening up again because how could you you know how could you get anything done if you didn't shut down yeah sometimes you know, if you didn't remove all the orifices. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's an interesting word, like that that idea of an orifice. 
Yeah, I, on some level, auteurs, like serious auteurs, they have to be unfuckable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfuckable. It's really important. That, you know, in the sense that they don't allow the, some other person's vision to seep through yeah. their orifice, but they also cannot be fucked with. So, and I, I mean, I quite, I really admire that. Yeah, me too. I really admire that. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it makes me sad as well. I know. It's yeah. tragic. So in a way, it's, it can only, it's only really functional, like from an emotional perspective, if you're like Stanley Kubrick, where you have your lifelong partner by your side mm -hmm. and you're a team and, you know, each person understands the other and there's no, you know, there's no, well, I'm sure, you know, no, no relationship is perfect, but it was functional. Yeah. They made their life work. I feel that um, a little bit about the sort of creative partnership between um, Lars von Trier and Charlotte Gainsbourg. Yeah. As well, because, you know, he's notoriously not easy for everyone no. to work for. But there's something about her, I really do think it's something about her general attitude to life. Yeah. And pain and love and sex and everything that makes her, like, that sort of makes her his equal. Yeah. In a way. And I think that's that's maybe the, the magic yeah. ingredient that you don't always you don't meet someone that's your equal very often yeah. but when you do there might be a third a third kind of creativity something yeah. in between this you know very masculine auteurship and this very like feminine sort of I want to say almost like a sort of a, like a, a dom not domestic way of creativity but something I really do feel like I know I talk about the love witch a lot but I really feel like Annabella yeah. represents the, like a very feminine method yeah. not necessarily woman's method but a feminine method of yeah. you know making everything she made everything herself on that yeah. film and it was and it took a very long time yeah. and it's all kind of like comes from like her hands yeah. in this way and I feel like with uh, I don't know I feel like when you have these people with those two kind of processes coming together then you can actually, yeah, you can actually make a third thing, which is is very very good. You can good. build on that, yeah, and it's empowering yeah. to both yeah. sort of ways of being. I'm not necessarily saying men and women, but no, I'm no. saying like the masculine and the feminine. No, because or, actually, you know. Lars von Trier is a really good example of another time where it really didn't work. Bjork, yes, Bjork being it herself very, a visionary, an auteur, yeah. and the two of them, strong-willed artists together. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that must have been a nightmare. Yeah. And no wonder they fell out. So maybe it's the intuitive and the sensing. You need yeah. those two people together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the introverts and the extroverts. Who knows? But um, <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I like that. Anyway, we've gone way off topic. Let's hit Blue Velvet. Let's do it. Oh, I know all our Lynchian fans are out here. They're, they're, they're just, they you know. They must be so excited. But, I can't yeah. believe it took us this long to do a Lynch. Yeah. But uh, now we've, st we've started with the... Probably the most famous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is something that came about um, following an artistic, what what he, what he David Lynch himself interpreted as a, as a massive artistic failure for him, mm -hmm. which was Dune. Mm -hmm. um, this was, you know, Dune being a picture that producers uh, kind of pushed him to make. There was all this pressure for it to be the next Star Wars. There was all this money thrown at him to make the picture. And... Uh, he felt very disillusioned by it all. Mm -hmm. And um, in the end, he made a vow that that was his lowest creative point and that he would never, ever um, forfeit his directorial uh, vision. And um, this is the result. Yeah. This is David Lynch kind of unleashed 
back on the cinema scene with complete ownership of his vision. Mm -hmm. And wow, what yeah. an effect. It is great. And I yeah. was saying to you that I felt, I uh, was saying at work, oh, I have to go home and watch Blue Velvet tonight, as if it was going to be, I was really, I felt like it was going to be a very draining experience, but I forgot actually how approachable this film is. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, of, it's all, entertaining. of all David Lynch films. I mean, they're all entertaining. I love, I love, but I just feel like I've really got, um, I've become very attached to the the nineties ones, you know, oh, the yeah. uh, Lost Highways yeah. and the Fire Walk with Me and when is Mulholland Drive? Early two thousands or yeah, two thousand one, I believe. Yeah. Um, so that's my sort of peak David Lynch time, mm. but this Wild was really heart. enjoyable. Wild at Heart. Yeah, this yeah. is very enjoyable. Um, um, it looks beautiful, and you can already see that this is where a lot of those iconic Lynchian objects come to fruition yeah. in this film oh my I was thinking about the story you told me that came from the the art life the David oh, Lynch yeah. documentary about him seeing a woman walking towards stagger it. I didn't even clock before that was in Dorothy the, that's, yeah <laughs> oh my god so it was I I think I've we've talked about it on this podcast before because when you told me the story it was in this room which is not soundproof but very quiet and you scared me because <laughs> you were really wide-eyed and telling me this scary story of a naked woman bleeding you know walking towards this child in this front garden um and it is really scary because she appears yeah. out of nowhere you're not even no yeah anyway so um a so the uh plot of blue velvet mm. um a young man goes home to visit his uh sick father yeah um played by kyle mcclough McLaughlin, McLaughlin, yeah, <laughs> uh, who is Agent Cooper in Twin Peaks. Yeah. His name is Jeffrey Beaumont. Yeah, um, and uh, when he comes home, he finds an ear, uh, a human ear, in from human penis to human ear, um, uh, in the grass. And uh, it, you know what? I've been watching so much. I've been listening to so much true crime in the mm. last couple of months that I was appalled when he picks it up and puts it in a paper bag. <laughs> what are you doing like in dna the scene the crime scene leave it where it is but it is it, it, there were so many yeah, so many things in this film that you know considering it's a detective story that just blatant disregard for basic forensic basic science. forensic science well i guess it's 1986 and people were you know policemen were doing that all over to the shop you know like just throwing blankets over bodies and you know yeah, yeah, and yeah, like yeah, so, yeah. so it's not to disturb passers-by and like all that you know all that kind of thing uh, but it frustrated me no end um he hmm. gives it to the uh sort of local police chief mm. um and later visits the police chief um to find out more information he's told he can't have any more information it's an ongoing case and he meets the police chief's daughter played by laura dern mm -hmm. her whose name is sandy yeah um and he's a character i like very much yeah actually. me too um and they and he's a sort of um he's very intrigued by this mystery he likes mysteries he wants to solve yeah. wants to solve this mystery so he gets her involved and she tells him about a woman that the police are surveilling uh called dorothy valens who's a nightclub singer and he hatches a plan to get into her apartment and to and to spy on her and to see what happens which is when we are introduced to the character played uh by dennis hopper um mm. who is named frank yeah who is a a terrifying and unpredictable uh, gangster and sexual sadist, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, and um, he he, become, he gets drawn into this sort of hidden darkness of this lovely suburban mm. town. 
basically. Um, so it's a very interesting story. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, Dorothy is Dorothy Valens, played by Isabel Isabel Rossellini, mm-hmm. is the reason we've chosen it in fashion films. It's it's a very it's a yeah. very good looking film, but she kind of keeps that connection because she was a model at yeah. the time of this at the time of this film. She was I think she didn't work. She's the daughter of um, Roberta Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman. Yeah, uh, she didn't really. I don't think she really worked. She was a, a journalist, I think, at first, and yeah. then she married Martin Scorsese. Yeah, became a model, became the face of Lancome. Yeah, and she's got quite a sort of famous, uh, sort of self-aware career as mm. a model and as a great beauty mm. because she's very vocal about. Um, I think that, you know, she's she's unusually started modeling when she was twenty-eight. Yeah, acting when she was even older than that, and yeah. it's and then I think was let go by Lancome in her 40s because she was too old. And then I think returned to Lancome quite recently. Yeah. Um, So she's always been very outspoken about the beauty industry. And and ageism. Ageism. Yeah. And she was also in Death Becomes Her as someone was peddling like an anti-aging immortalization (laughs) drug. So she's very, I don't know, she's very like within that conversation of beauty. And actually, I think that I hadn't realised how beautiful... She was until I rewatched this film. Yeah, she's just staggering. Yeah, she's stunning. Um, just not like no one else, and I can understand why uh, Ross in Friends put her on his oh, yeah. um, laminated list. Laminated list. Laminated list. <laughs> yeah, because um, I didn't really get it before. Because in in that Friends episode, she kind of looks like um, I don't know, like someone's mum or something. Like and a she's very also, beautiful woman. But... She, yeah, and she's also kind of wearing androgynous clothing yeah, as well. She is. And I'll never forget when Ross approaches her and said. Um, you know, oh, I've put you on my laminated list, you know, and she's, she's like, she doesn't look that bothered. And he says, come on, this is a wonderful opportunity. Once in a lifetime opportunity. Once once in a lifetime opportunity. And she goes, yeah, for you, you know. (laughs) She's so good in it. She's fantastic. She completely stole that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's actually interesting because she had a, she actually had a very collaborative relationship with David Lynch. She she was uh, romantically romantically involved with at the time of this film and up to the time of Wild at Heart. Yeah. Um, And I, there's a really good episode of You Must Remember This about her. Mm. Um, And Karina Longworth said that uh, after, uh, quite soon after the premiere at Cannes of uh, Wild at Heart, Mm. he, she was in Russia doing an acting job and he rang her up and broke up with her over the phone. Oh yeah. Um, and I think what were you thinking, David? I know, <laughs> and uh, there's a really interesting thing which I feel like is kind of connected in in that episode where she says that she rang Martin Scorsese and said David left me, and he said, "Oh, I knew that was coming because uh, the in at, at Cannes he um, you, the two of you were being photographed and he kissed you on the lips in front of the press, and um, but usually he hadn't he hasn't ever really sort of." visually acknowledged you as his girlfriend before that and I assumed that he was doing it because you were in tr- the relationship was in trouble oh my god that you know he was doing it to cover up to cover up something bad and I think that's so interesting in that's terms so interesting. Of, um, of Blue Velvet and of like the larger conversation about uh, just appearances um, exactly white picket fences and rose yeah. ro- rose gardens and then the camera kind of seeps down into the earth and there's all these bugs rolling yeah. around and there's the, there's something else there's this underbelly of chaos yeah um, it's a it's an interesting little side wow, story wow that's I just such an interesting story kind of picked up on as 
you know, just it's so interesting how these visionaries can make these these films and then fall into the same traps that yeah. they write that they make work about. They're repeating a pattern. Yeah, it's again and again, compulsive. probably yeah. for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and, but um, but I think she's important in sort of terms of the fe- even the female auteur because I think she had a lot of uh, control over the look of her characters, especially in Wild at Heart. Yeah. It was her idea to do that sort of Frida Kahlo unibrow thing. That's right. You know? So she is. She has uh, a lot of sort of creative agenda of her own. Yeah, she's autonomous as autonomy. a performer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the way you set up uh, the plot of the film um, because for me, what drew me, I think absolutely you're correct to say that it, Isabella as a performer it sort of transcends the film Blue Velvet mm-hmm. in terms of her um, place in our series on fashion, fashion films because of her experience mm-hmm. in the fashion world, in the beauty world. But also what really kind of made me personally drawn to this particular title for this session in particular is that so it's this fixation on what she's wearing Mm -hmm. and the fact that there's even this I mean she sings the song Blue Velvet and I think the lyrics are she wore blue velvet etc etc right Mm -hmm. so there's this fixation on a memory of what someone wore and in that encounter inside Dorothy's apartment, okay, so, and this actually makes me think of Crimes of Passion, because there's a, there's somebody uh, unbeknown to the other people in the apartment, mm-hmm. hidden away, so the, you know, the Jeffrey Beaumont character, he's, uh, he's been sneaking around this apartment, and uh, he's now in the closet, and he's looking, yeah, he's in the closet, he's in the closet, yeah, which you know? is, I wrote down when we watched, I was, because I, that's the thing, I was thinking, that that was the only reason I could think it was a fashion film. And then suddenly I was like, he spends so much time in the wardrobe with all of her dresses in this film. And that's very much like uh, Blood and Black Lace. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think David Lynch said that he was um, somehow influenced by that film, Blood Blood and Black Lace. (gasps) I've read that. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That it was one of the kind of influences for him. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense, uh, the closet business. But the fact that it's it's like the Anthony Perkins character, you know, peeking out uh, or peeking into this kind of sexual scene. Mm-hmm. So it's like a primal scene, actually. So in, in psychoanalysis, you know, we talk about the primal scene as being uh, this experience of the child uh, usually uh, sort of stumbling into this room of the house and then kind of suddenly witnessing a sex act mm-hmm. um, between usually their parents or sometimes the primal scene can be a kid um, watching National Geographic on TV and seeing animals, yes. you know? So it can literally just be any moment that suddenly is experienced as this, what Freud calls the overwhelming unknown. You're suddenly witnessing something that you cannot, you don't have a template for, you're just a kid, you're innocent. Now you suddenly face-to-face, you're confronted with this uh, really weird, uh, strange activity that you can't quite look away from it's like a car wreck and you're equally uh, terrified but also um, strangely like agitated by it you want to continue looking there's like a weird curiosity about what's going on there's a mystery Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and this character Jeremy Beaumont he's 
He's got a fetish for mysteries. Yes. He loves mysteries and he's very drawn to them. Um, to the point that also this young lady, um, Sandy, played by D- Laura Dern, who's kind of like a love interest mm-hmm. for him, um, he reveals to her in a diner, you know, that he loves mysteries and that she's also a mystery. And she, he, you know, he wants to, there's some things about her that he wants to find out. But also, not just her sex, her sexuality, but also aspects of his own sexuality that he's curious about. It's all this is kind of shrouded in mystery. So I'm looking at this scene. He's in the closet. He's he's having this primal scene of witnessing a sex act that he doesn't understand mm-hmm. because it's 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 very sadomasochistic in in and there's nature. There's no actual sex in it. No, there's no actual sex in it. Mm-hmm. It's literally Frank. Um, so what's he doing? He's sort of Oh my god, there's so much going on in that scene because yeah. you know, like everyone's like mummy, daddy, and baby, like you know, like everyone's multiple roles, yeah. aren't they? You know, and like and that's it's such a straight and it is very like family pri- like primal scene yeah. based. Um but it's yeah, he just see, he sees sort of this strange role play followed by just some acts of violence, yeah. which both of them seem to enjoy. Yeah. Um and uh, he spends uh, he spends a lot of the film just in it's it's a sim he's a similar person in a way to the Reverend because he spends this film wanting to wanting to save her yeah. and ignoring the fact that she's in a in a pleasurable position and exactly. it's very it's very strange and and even even that I I was really I was so into this line that I put it up on Instagram when um, Sandy says to him. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. Uh, it's and you know he says uh, it's for me to know and you to find out. But it's you don't you don't know either. No. What whether you are a detective or no. a pervert or if it's the same thing. But there is something, and I've I've been thinking a lot about the as you know a lot about the role of the detective and what that is and why I'm personally so drawn to it. Why detectives seem to be so drawn to it. I mean, sorry, directors seem yeah. to be so drawn to it. And psychoanalysts are described as detectives. Exactly. And I do think there is an element of it that is is controlling. Mm. You know, there's an element of it that wants to um, compartmentalise and soothe. Yeah. You know, and he spends spends, um, a lot of time in the film trying to diminish the aspects of Dorothy that he doesn't understand. Yeah. And, you know, and talk up this, you know, this very... Uh, understandable situation between a violent man and a vic- and a victim you know yeah. um it's fascinating it is fascinating you're so right about him kind of following her around the way that uh the reverend mm-hmm. is constantly like on her on china blues trails yeah. and like trying to uh in a sense, be some form of protection. But it's very patronizing because it's making an assumption about her desire that actually she's uh, being put upon, you know, that there's no autonomous desire taking place on her side, mm-hmm. that she's completely a victim, she's completely oppressed. Um, whereas, so we're looking, you know, he's looking at this alien scene, this completely bizarre primal scene where Frank... Um, so he, there's this barrage of insults. Mm-hmm. He's screaming and carrying on, like having a tantrum of some kind. Yeah, and it's very inf- like inf- infantile. infantile yeah. yeah, and then then he takes an oxygen mask 
and he starts breathing very intensely through that. And then there's also there's a lot of Oedipal things going on where he talks about himself being a baby and a daddy. Yeah. And also her being the mummy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's instructing her to, like, display herself for him, etc., etc. And then he does also, there is physical violence, like, mm-hmm. he is beating her up and stuff. But the way the cinematography suggests that this is something she enjoys. Yeah. But what really, really, for me, convinced me that Blue Velvet belongs in, in fashion films, and particularly in fetishes, is that he takes... Is it a knife or scissors? And he cuts like a square bit of the fabric from her blue velvet nightgown, mm-hmm. nightdress. And then he like puts it in his mouth. He puts it in both of their mouths. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There's a bit in her mouth and a bit in his mouth. That's right. Mm-hmm. So there's this consumption of the fetishized objects, mm-hmm. you know, like... Apart from, like, as you say, there is no physical sex going on. There's actually no sex at all. Mm-hmm. So it's, we don't, we're not, we don't know whether he's, like, impotent or what's going on. What, you know, why doesn't it maybe carry f- forward more than that? And then I'm thinking, well, this is the ultimate strategy of containment. You know, it's the ultimate fetishizing of some aspect of her that he can literally cut off as a square and then, you know, they can consume that as part of this kind of strange, sadomasochistic ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is where his desire has to be contained. Not just her as a castrating agent, but also his own desire has to be maintained in that square. Mm-hmm. And then he can just cut more of it off in the next encounter, etc. I can't go beyond that because it's overwhelming. The same way that it's overwhelming for Jeffrey. Yeah. It's too much. He's in there. He doesn't know what's going on here. This goes beyond maybe even something he's fantasized about. In the same way that I think for David Lynch as a kid, you know, he tells the story in the art life that, yes, he's in this suburban place. He's playing in the street as a kid with some other kid. Out of nowhere, this completely inexplicable figure of a naked woman and he says this is the first time he ever saw a naked woman so that was his primal scene she she appears staggering towards these two kids and he said in the art life that because they were so small he had to look up like she was like freakishly tall because of the height difference so she literally she, it was like this kind of overwhelming experience of female sex, sexuality mm-hmm. she's completely naked and she's wearing this really bright red lipstick and she has dark raven kind of um hair and she's crying and we, he can sense that something terrible has happened he, she won't say what it was and she sits down on the curb you know on the side of the curb so these are, I think, as an auteur, as a filmmaker, as an artist, because he's also classically trained as an artist, as a painter. For me, it comes out in, in, in Blue Velvet as this is, you know, he is Jeffrey Beaumont. He's the one addicted to mystery and trying to peek into some tangible manifestation of this surreal world he finds himself in as an artist with an imagination like that. And he's trying to make sense of things. Um, and um, I just wonder, 
what that because this kind of thing recurs in his other films as well uh in in Mulholland Drive mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 brunette you know she's very similar in a sense to Dorothy Valens what she looks like and she turns up bloodied yeah. she staggers out of the car that there's been an accident wild at heart as well wild at heart as well what's her name Sherilyn Fenn absolutely mm-hmm. um in lost highway it's even it's even more brutal than that um it's 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 much more brutal uh, domestic violence. He says that that while that heart grew out of the O.J. Simpson case, oh, a fixation on O.J. Hmm. being what he, David Lynch said at the time, he believed he was a murderer, but he was able to compartmentalize his personality. Oh, at, uh, Lost Highway. In Lost Highway, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. There's so much with so Lynch. Much I mean, it's so difficult to pin down. Yeah, but I mean, it was... you could analyse it for years and years. Yeah. But I found it really interesting that when that uh, act, sex act is over, um, he says, st- just, he says, stay alive or something yeah. to her. Stay, stay alive, baby. Yeah. Um, and I, I just find that really interesting in terms of um, the, the, the death you're causing when you do fetishise someone. I don't yeah. know. It's uh, yeah. it's as if I don't know. You can't completely kill someone off because if you have to use them up, you know, you need them to, you need them to be around for the next time. I'm not sure. It was a very strange. Wow. I don't know why he said that, but it did. It, it the fact that we've been talking about death so much, um, and he's somehow enabling her to keep going. Oh my god, that's so true. Do you think that okay? So this is this is a Lacanian thing, mm-hmm. or more, maybe more post-structural thing. There's some kind of postmodernists that talk about language. Then the moment you name something, you've killed it, because um, you've you've become more interested in what that object represents in language, and so you've kind of now divorced yourself mm-hmm. from the phenomenological experience of relating to the object. You've now just categorized it. So you've actually just killed some aspect of it. So in a way, language is quite fetishistic. We have to name things. We have to put them in little boxes. They have to signify something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they become symbols. And so I just wonder whether it's almost operating on the same thing when he says, just stay alive. <laughs> But because this relationship is built on so many strategies of containment and and fetishizing and trying to, the people, the humanize, they're standing in only as symbols, but you're right, there's still a desire for them to kind of be sustained in Mm -hmm. some way so that the same ritual can be repeated. You need them, you need them alive. Yeah. That's interesting. It is interesting. But what does that mean in the context of the neon demon when the Jenna Malone character is a necro- is a necrophile? She doesn't want them. Alive. No, she doesn't. Well, she only does. I'm not sure. I think in a what Jujex says something about the only something when he talks about vertigo. You know that old yeah. adage of the only only good woman is a dead woman. Yeah. But Jenna Malone is the is the ultimate sort of fetishist. It doesn't. I think because for her the um, the dead body is a, a substitute for the promise of Elle Fanning, who could have been whatever mm-hmm. whatever anyone wants her to be, you know. But she exercises some agency and says no. So she's, you know. So the dead body is a better substitute for her. In a she way, she can make well, up the dead body exactly, and she's a makeup artist. Yeah, 
it's uh, it's interesting. It's all really interesting. Oh but my god! It all just kind of points to our fear of people in all their yeah in all their dimensions, and it's not men's fear of women necessarily. Like the idea of castration anxiety can happen to us all, but fear of what someone might do to you with their yeah. with their their own fetishes and their own agency their and own their desire. own desires and their own humanity is just too much. You know, you have to, you have to. I don't know, and the person that gets really hurt in that film is uh, Sandy. Yeah. Who, um, I just found it really fascinating, actually, because I think when I first watched it, I just thought she was a, a bit of a drip and I wasn't that interested in her, but she maintains a safe distance for most of that film. She's really, she's really careful. She's yeah. so careful with her affections. Mm. And then when she finally deems it, you know, safe to give them away like everything comes crashing down and yeah. she's horribly hurt yeah. and that our conversation about the orifice the way her like m- her like a <gasps> mouth opens when she starts crying and it's just like that like just this just disintegration this awful face of like horror yeah. and pain screaming it's like yeah it's like in a silent sc- yeah scream yeah. and um and they have this really like prolonged kissing scene just before that oh, yeah. where they like they both their mouths are open and i remember thinking like this doesn't feel like a very appropriate kissing scene for these two people in this, like, sort of almost, like, 1950s-style... Wholesome. You know, wholesome place. This feels, like, a bit too much. But actually, mm. it's very appropriate for someone who has kept themselves so safe and then opens themselves yeah. up. And she does... And um, I did find it... I do think Isabel Rossellini is a comedy genius, though, when she says, for the second time... He put his poison inside me. Like she just says it, like peeking out in this like yeah. malicious way, and it's really, it's really funny. I laughed out loud when the first time she says it. It's quite you know upsetting and disturbing because you know she's clearly having a a breakdown of some some sort. But she says it a second time. It's just like she's a bit impish. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it really made me laugh. I thought it was just this. This I, I never noticed that before. How funny that line is when she says it twice. Repetition's yeah. funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's not funny once is funny. It's funny if you say it again. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. But now I'm left wondering because we've talked about fashion and death and how there is really a strong relationship in the way that post-structuralists say that if you you know, by naming something, you've killed it. Mm-hmm. I think it's Baudrillard who said, um, if you've fallen in love with someone and you tell them you love them, uh, you've already been unfaithful because now you're fetishizing those words you say. Oh, that's such a good thing to say. And I actually could not agree more. Yeah. That's really interesting. You're being unfaithful with the words. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, because you've, um, it is sort of like that, that, you know, that intuitive versus sensing that, you know, the, the scene versus the ephemeral, you've taken something that is, is, uh, unsayable really. I mean, yeah. when you really think of like all things worth anything are, are, that's, that's why we have film and why we have visual art. It's things that are unsayable and un. You know, even though we have this podcast and we make our living on saying things, um, yeah. or not our living, but our reputations, um, you know, there are things there are things that are just inexpressible through yeah. language. That's the whole point of those, you know, those those amazing things, and it's it's true. You're you're already, yeah, it's already you're already kind of announcing the death of love if you yeah. say the word. 
Yeah, yeah, because you're already attaching some meaning to the expression Mm -hmm. versus just being in the moment and the experiential reality of love. And so now if that's true, if if the categorization of events and feelings and moments like that, ephemeral fleeting things, they kind of get imprisoned and then like sort of decay inside these cages of words... Is that also true with fashion too? Like the second you dress someone, like the, you know, you could say that, that uh, you know, someone like uh, Tom Ford being a fashion designer, he's a serial killer mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's dressing people in those signifiers, you know, those moods and aesthetic uh, events for women and men. Well, I mean, it is true that the second a trend is formed, then it's over. Yeah, you know, the second something <laughs> is is sort of recognized as a as a a trope of, of fashion, you know, this, the, it's this passe. is, it's, yeah, it is. And you can't, it's ruined. It's ruined. Once that you, you know, people, the, the people who are the, the best dressed are the people who you can't quite describe how, what they're doing. But as soon as everyone else starts doing it and, you know, and like a name is given to it because names are given to trends and there's, there's ways of describing them. We have to find terms because how else would we shop online? Exactly. If we didn't, I'm constantly, you know, trying. And because my fashion, my style references tend to come from things that are anachronistic. They're from the, you know, they're not from now. They're from a film that I've just seen, but it's 20 years old or, you know, something like that. I do find it really hard to put into, to find what I'm looking for because I don't have the language for it. Wow. And so, and I, so I really appreciate it when I find a word that will describe what I'm looking for. Yeah. You know, often I can't find it. And that's, and that's what makes it so, you know, I've been looking for the same things for years and years and that they're still so desirable for me, for me. But the second. It's an exciting chase. It is an exciting chase. And (laughs) I just have to depend on coming across them accidentally or I have to make my own or something like that. Mm. But once, yeah, once something is, you know, named a a bardo top or a, you know, cold shoulder top or all, I'm just trying to think of all these things that have, that I've, I noticed that, you know, when you go on ASOS or Topshop, you have all these sudden new phrases for things and um, you can guarantee that anything you've got a new phrase for, you'll be sick of in six months. Absolutely sickle. It ruins it. Yeah. It ruins it. And so now I'm, yeah, absolutely. It's, there's something about that suddenly now being contained yeah. uh, in the confines of however way it's being qualified or represented in fashion and the object is now being created to encompass the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, lose, it starts to lose its value it and is. it really declines and dies. So now I'm thinking, when... The, the encounter between Frank and Dorothy, um, <laughs> you know, he's literally cutting out pieces of fabric from her blue velvet dress, this fetishized kind of fabled dress, mm-hmm. this object of desire, and he's choking on it. Like, so to me, it just makes me think that, you know, they're ODing on this kind of, uh, I don't know, it's something that there's that strange kind of the dance. I mean, if you know, for Freud, the the erotic is always in, entangled in a kind of eternal dance with the death drive. Mm-hmm. So those things are like very, very closely related. Um, but not, for me, almost never more so than in that scene where a man who is displaying certain signs of like this kind of hyper exaggerated masculinity but is 
maybe presents as so virile, mm-hmm. but actually he seems impotent. Yeah. I mean, he's on life support. Like, he's got that strength, which has never been explained, by the way, no, why he's got well, that oxygen. Well, you wouldn't want it to, otherwise it would kill the whole character. Yeah. Um, but it's like the breath of life. Yeah. You know, he has to carry that with him. He needs a, um, a prop. And he's very, like, actually is very orificeful, you know, the fact yeah, that he, he has to continuously inhale this mystery <laughs> substance and that... Uh, he's he's so you know he's always cr- weeping like so you yeah. know he's always like on the verge of tears you know moved by something oh yeah like a, know, song. a song yeah um and uh yeah he's very and in, in in the way um uh, is Lini is is a little bit more unfuckable actually yeah. especially when she's in that blue velvet dress yeah exactly you know not no, not necessarily yeah. when she's in her own clothes also there's a there's a thing of um. That I didn't mm. understand about le- how she layers outfits. Mm-hmm. She um, there's there's a few scenes where she puts she has a red dress on, she puts a blue dress on on top of it and goes out, and she's got a wig on over her own hair. Yeah, and uh, it, and it, these are wig films, but the films we've oh yeah, actually they they are both wig films. Amazing wig, and there is something oh about God. a wig that makes you look um, just th- there is something about a wig that makes you look so diminished when you take it off, like about any kind of. A, a coot- like beauty accoutrement like when you have your nails done or your, your lashes acrylics, yeah. or something and you take them off and you're just you're like you're reduced to some kind of baby form <laughs> you know you have a tiny head and tiny like stubby nails and I'm not really quite sure what that is but there is something about these two women who are kind of larger than like who are you know in in a way that in a way they're being fetishized and dehumanized but in another way they're even more terrifying because yeah. they've got these extra layers on and the extra layers are making them sort of so, like extra human, you know? Yeah. Um, larger gets, than life. Yeah, they are larger than life. Yeah. You know, their makeup is, is like, is, you know, really exaggerated. Her makeup is really exaggerated. Yeah. Jackie Valens and, oh my God. and the wig is just so, really... And when she takes everything off, she looks really vulnerable. So that's so true. Yeah, their makeup, it's almost very similar in some ways because it's very, very, very red lipstick. Mm-hmm. In Crimes of Passions, it's more red, like orange red. Yeah. Whereas in Blue Velvet, it's more like a blue-toned red. But they also both wear blue eyeshadow. Mm-hmm. So it's like these really exaggerated forms of makeup. But they look like someone else. Just like in Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. when uh, Laura Elena Haring puts on the blonde wig and uh, Naomi Watts says, you look like someone else in the mirror. I mean, and isn't that really a little bit about what you have to do to function as the sexual person? <laughs> yeah. A little bit, you know? Like I've, I've always, I mean... You have to occupy something, to, some other fantasy. You have to. You can't, yeah. you couldn't... That's why people have such good sex in hotels. <laughs> because there's no one, there's yeah. nothing around them that reminds them of who they are exactly and it's every you know it's who you you are and your daily struggles and your disappointments and the drudgery that, yeah, yeah. that prevent you from from being sexually happy you know and that's what all that, those intrusive thoughts that she has in crimes of passion oh you don't you don't get you don't get that so much in a in a hotel room no you know you get them you when could you're be in anyone else stuff. exactly yeah and i think that's why i don't know and it's so true. Yeah, it's all very, it's all very um, complex and confusing and uh, worrying. It's all very worrying. I'm very worried. <laughs> um, but yeah. Oh my god, I love these insights. Um, two very interesting films. Yeah, and through us talking about them, strangely connected. Yeah. 
very connected. I wonder. And Kenny. Yeah. I mean, made very, very close yeah. together to the extent that I don't know how, whether David Lynch would have particularly been aware of kinds of fashion. So it's just a coincidence that they're so similar. Um, but yeah, I think well, we've talked for an hour and a half. If you're still listening, we love you. Yeah. Leave us a comment on iTunes. Follow us on on Spotify. Yeah. Give us a rating. Give us a rating. We a rating is very helpful to us. Tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Instagram. Um, get in touch. Do whatever you like. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Have you said all you want to say? Yeah. Great. Bye. Bye.